0: Well, 2020 has been quite a year so far, has it not, Uh, between this pandemic that never seems to end and uh, political turmoil, racial tensions, fires in our communities, uh, distance learning, kids at home in different routines, economic stresses, uh, things things have been uh, very difficult in a lot of ways. And for some of us, I know uh, these things have hit home very personally and very uh, sharply and that there has been uh, significant personal suffering that we have faced in this time. For others of us, maybe it's uh, just more of an undercurrent of frustration and difficulty uh, that we've encountered. But we know that in whatever season we're in, whether it's something like this where where there's there's an intensity in the suffering that we feel, or whether it's uh, just kind of normal life, uh, where there's the regular bumps and bruises of of uh, conflicts and uh, hard days and whatever, uh, we know that we do encounter and have to respond to uh, the suffering of this broken world. If it's not our own, then we certainly know people around us who are suffering. And so the question that we are continually asking and that we want to wrestle with, look at this morning, is how do we respond well to our own suffering, to the suffering of those around us? How do we respond well in a way that honors our God and walk with one another in these hard, difficult places of life? I'm sure that, that uh, we could each List a particular hard place, and I encourage you to think of maybe a place where you yourself either are suffering or are walking with someone in suffering. But I want to just mention a couple just to uh, give us something concrete uh, to think about as as we are uh, going through this time. So, how do you uh, walk with a good friend who seems to be uh, despairing more and more, getting more and more hopeless with, what is going on in their life, maybe has even mentioned thoughts of taking their own life. How do you walk with someone in such a dark and difficult season like that? Or what do you do when your spouse doesn't take responsibility for their harsh words and instead maybe puts all the blame on you? How do you walk with them Or if you know a couple who is struggling in their marriage in that way, how do you walk together with them in that hard place? Or maybe where do you look for help for your own self when you find yourself caught in a a habit of sin that you just can't seem to get control over no matter how hard you try? Where do you find that help, that hope in the midst of that place for yourself? There's many, many others. Each of us probably have uh, a particular example of those hard places. But that's what we want to look at today. How do we walk with one another in those hard places of life? Well, children, I'm going to pause right here. All right, children in front of me as well as uh, at home on the screen. Listen up. This is, this is for you here. Okay, so the word that we want you to listen for this morning is the word one another, all right? And if you think that's two words, you can just put a hyphen between it, okay? It's, there you go. One another. And, and this is the, the ASL uh, hand sign for that is one another, like this. So you can do that, one another, okay? And the Bible is full of one another commands, and they're not just for us big people, adults, but they're for you kids as well. Because these these commands uh, are for all of us who belong to Jesus. They teach us how we, as friends and followers of Jesus, are to relate to each other, to get along with one another. And so you've probably heard, kids, some of these commands. And I want you to see if you can guess what they are as I do some signs uh, for them. Okay, So the Bible says that we are to love one another. That one's easy. The Bible says we are to, not dance, Greg, Uh, serve one another, all right? Uh, The Bible says we are to forgive one another. The Bible says we are to encourage, someone said it, one another. Yes, and we're even to greet one another. And in fact, kids, many places in the Bible it says to greet one another with a holy kiss. But you can save that for your mom and dad or for your brother who doesn't like to be kissed. Okay. So these, all of these, and the Bible has many other one another commands, and these are all ways in which we, including you kids, uh, grow to be more like Jesus. Okay, so kids and adults, listen for that word one another as I talk this morning. So, In Ephesians chapter 4, that's not the main text we're going to be looking at, but Ephesians 4 speaks of our growth toward maturity in Christ. And it speaks of it as a corporate, a collective process. It's not just an individual thing where you grow or I grow, but we as the body of Christ grow together. And so that's the point of all of these one another commands, is that those are the ways in which we grow together that we help one another grow toward maturity in Christ, the whole body together. Hebrews 10, 25 tells us that the reason why we are to keep on meeting, not giving up our meeting together, is so that we can encourage each other toward love and good deeds. And we're to do that more and more because the day of Christ is coming near. And that same word for encourage is used earlier in Hebrews in chapter 3, Verse 12 and 13, where it says, Take care, brothers and sisters, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another, there's that word, encourage one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. And so this verse makes it even more explicit, that we are to encourage and exhort one another every day and not just once a day so we can check it off our list but as long as it is called today and so that means all the time all the time and this isn't just a pat on the back kind of feel good encouragement but this is particularly encouragement toward obedience to God so that we aren't deceived and hardened by our sinful hearts and so In the suffering that we face and in the suffering that those around us are going through, in all of our struggles with sin, this is the primary source of help and hope that God has provided for us, one another. This is the primary source of help and hope God has provided, one another, that we are to walk together. God has placed us in the body of Christ, He's given us all of the resources of His Word and his spirit within us, so that we can then help each other grow toward maturity in the midst of our sufferings and sin struggles. Well, this kind of mutual encouragement and love, particularly in these hard places of life, is a ministry to one another that sometimes is called biblical counseling, You've probably been hearing that term, biblical counseling, uh, from the pulpit here and in various contexts at Evergreen SGV. And so my goal, my assignment this morning is to give you an understanding of that so that we can uh, see what that ministry is all about. And so I'm going to briefly define biblical counseling and then we're going to look at a passage in Luke uh, that is kind of a picture of it in action. We've talked a lot this year about discipleship being the core of our church. That being a learner, a follower, an apprentice, a disciple of Jesus, that's what we're all about, to be disciples and to make disciples. And biblical counseling is kind of one aspect under that larger umbrella of discipleship. If discipleship generally focuses on training and godliness then biblical counseling is discipleship in the hard places. It's the encouragement and the help that's needed to keep going as a disciple in the midst of particular seasons of suffering or sin. If a life of discipleship is compared to competing in a volleyball match, then biblical counseling would be the trainer on the sideline where you go after you've rolled your ankle for them to wrap it up, put ice on it, so that you can get back in the game. Or if we would compare discipleship to a long and perilous journey, then biblical counseling would be your Samwise Gamgee, who is carrying his Frodo so that they can make it to the end of their quest. So biblical counseling undergirds and supports discipleship. And biblical counseling is the, the primary, min, uh, the personal ministry, sorry, the personal ministry of the word. Every Sunday morning here, we uh, receive the public ministry of the word. One person stands up here and speaks to all of us and proclaims uh, the word, the gospel, it is, it is applied to us. But in biblical counseling, the word is applied personally. As we engage face to face, one on one or in a smaller setting in regard to a particular struggle or a suffering that a person is dealing with. And so it's the personal ministry of the word, applying the grace and truth of Christ to the hard places of our everyday lives. And we call it biblical counseling. Not because the Bible is some kind of counseling encyclopedia in which we find a verse for loss, a verse for hope, a verse for anger or lust, a verse for eating disorder, whatever. Right? It's not that. We may indeed find some verses that address particular kinds of sufferings and struggles, and yet there's many sufferings and struggles that we face that are not explicitly spoken of in Scripture. And so when we say that counseling is biblical, primarily we mean that it's counseling that's shaped by a biblical understanding, a biblical lens of life. So it's shaped by this biblical lens where we have a holy yet personal God who draws near to his people. A lens where we recognize that our attempts to make life work apart from God, that's actually our greatest problem And our greatest help doesn't come from within us, but it comes from what Christ has done for us. It's a lens where we see that we've been given the sufficient word of God, the indwelling spirit of God as the source of our power and hope. Where we are united to Christ, adopted into his family. So this is the biblical lens through which we see all of life. And that is what makes it biblical counseling. It's biblical counseling because it's shaped by this biblical perspective of God. And then it's also biblical in that the content in which we minister to one another comes either directly from Scripture or from that overarching storyline of Scripture. And then it's biblical in the ways in which We minister to one another, what we see modeled and taught in Scripture, the one another's. And so we're going to turn now to look at kind of this picture of biblical counseling in the gospel of Luke from an encounter that Jesus has with two of his disciples along the road. Now, the Bible doesn't use the term biblical counseling. And so the gospel writer Luke in this story is not recording this story as an intent uh, to show us what biblical counseling is. He is simply recording the events that happened and how Jesus ministered to his disciples. But as we are called to walk as Jesus walked, 1 John says, then we would do well to learn from and to follow Jesus' example in this as well, whether or not we call it biblical counseling. So this story of Jesus is found in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 24, starting in verse 13. So Luke 24, starting in verse 13. You please uh, turn there in your Bible and uh, follow along with me as I read it. And uh, if you are able, please rise with me as I, as I read uh, the scripture. So Luke uh, 24, 13 to 35. That very day... to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Verse 28, so they drew near to the village to which they were going. He acted as if he were going further, but they urged him strongly saying, Stay with us, for it is toward evening and the day is now far spent. So he went in to stay with them. When he was at table with them, he took the bread and blessed and broke it and gave it to them. And their eyes were opened and they recognized him. And he vanished from their sight. They said to each other, did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures? And they rose that same hour and returned to Jerusalem. And they found the eleven and those who were with them gathered together, saying, The Lord is risen indeed and has appeared to Simon. Then they told what had happened on the road and how he was known to them in the breaking of the bread. Lord, would you teach us from your word this morning that we could see in your example, Jesus, a picture of how you call us to walk with one another. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. So how did Jesus minister to these two disciples? How could we look at this as a picture of biblical counseling? Well, the first thing that we notice here is that Jesus engaged fully. Jesus engaged fully. If you're Following along uh, with the slides online or in your app uh, here with the sermon notes, then uh, there's a few fill-ins here. So the first one is that he engaged fully. The word is engaged there. Verse 13 starts by telling us that this story is happening on that very day. If you glance up to the beginning of the chapter, you see that this day, that, that very day is Resurrection Sunday. That Jesus has just been raised from the dead. And I'm really grateful that Luke includes this story in his gospel account, because I think it's very reassuring in, in some ways. Here is the greatest day in all of history that Jesus has conquered death, he has risen victoriously, having paid for our sins, opened the way for us to have relationship restored to God, and yet... On this greatest day ever, there are people who are sad and hurting and feeling alone. And Jesus engages with these sad and hurting people even on this day of his greatest triumph. And there's something reassuring about that because that's very true to our experience. Sometimes we find ourselves sad and hurting On a Sunday morning, on a day when maybe others are feeling very happy and and alive. And Jesus doesn't storm in and demand that we simply be happy. But he engages with us in our sadness and grief. Well, these two men were on their way from Jerusalem to a village called Emmaus. And Luke tells us it's about seven miles away. I don't know if you've ever walked or hiked seven miles, but it's not exactly a quick trip on foot. And so most likely this is taking at least a couple hours. And the fact that they're discussing rather animatedly all that has happened in the weekend probably means that it's taking even longer. But sometime in the midst of their discussion, verse 15 says that Jesus himself drew near and went with them. Now, in... Our culture and time, if we were walking along a hiking trail and someone we don't recognize walks up behind us and, and kind of slows down to walk with us and starts talking, we probably would be a little bit uncomfortable, even creeped out by that, um, especially in this current uh, season here. Uh, but in the culture of Jesus' day, right, this was not out of the ordinary at all. This, this was their regular mode of transportation and this was a regular thing that happened, and therefore we don't see these two men being phased at all by this presumed stranger coming up to walk with them. But think with me about what this entails. I don't think this is a miraculous thing that Jesus just suddenly appears on the road next to them, but it says that he draws near. So think back to... What is it, junior high algebra or whatever? Rate times time equals distance, right? You, that's one of the few math problems that I remember. Someone's shaking their head over there <laughs> in, in, like, uh, terrible memories there, yeah. Uh, so if Jesus is catching up to them, what does that mean about his rate compared to theirs? He's walking faster than them. He draws near at a faster rate What does he have to do in order to match pace with them? He slows down. He slows down. And Jesus slows down his pace to match theirs. Apparently, he listens to at least a a bit of their conversation until there's a break in their dialogue, and then he asks that question of, what is this conversation you're having with each other? And what happens then? Verse 17 says that they stood still looking sad. They stood still. They stopped walking altogether, and that means that Jesus also stopped walking. He also stood still, taking in their sadness and their words. So Jesus went from this faster pace to a slower pace to a complete standstill. That is how he engaged with them and entered into this hard place where they were at. Our second point is really part and parcel to the first one, that Jesus engaged fully with these friends first by slowing down, but then also by listening well. So Jesus listened perceptively. He listened perceptibly. Listened is the word to fill in there. Does Jesus know what has happened in Jerusalem over these past few days? That's not a trick question. <laughs> Yes, yes, he completely knows what has happened. He was there. He was the one to whom these things were happening. He is not unaware of this. And so he could have entered their conversation in a very different way. He could have commented on the things that they were saying, but instead, what does he do? He asks a question. What are you talking about? But notice what that question accomplishes. The question draws out something of their hearts. Because they are amazed that someone would not know what has happened in the events of this weekend. And that that amazement reveals their devotion. Right? That these things that have happened matter to them deeply. They care deeply about what has happened. And therefore, they're amazed that someone wouldn't be aware of that. But Jesus doesn't stop there. He probes deeper. And so when they ask somewhat incredulously, are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who isn't aware of these things? Then I absolutely love Jesus' response. He says, what things? Undoubtedly, there were quite a few other things that happened in Jerusalem that weekend besides Jesus' resurrection, death and resurrection. Conceivably, there could have been babies born, couples getting married, tragic accidents, sickness, death, uh, besides just regular business and politics of a major city, right? So there were other things that were going on. And so when Jesus asks what things, he's actually humbly allowing for the possibility that, in fact, they're discussing something different than what's on his mind, And even if they are thinking of the same events, he's inviting them to share how they've perceived or interpreted those events. And so there's a humility in Jesus' second question here of what things. And again, look at what that question draws out of them. They give a concise summary of the events that did happen and show that they are thinking of the same thing there. But then they don't stop there. Verse 21 continues their response. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. But we had hoped. What do you hear in that statement? Confusion, perhaps? Definitely grief and sadness? But maybe some level of despair, too. We had hoped. It's past tense. Hope is gone. Jesus is dead. That is final. What what are we going to do now? And so... His question helps to move them from just the facts of what has happened to their emotional response to those events. And to further complicate their despair, there's this strange report from the women who were at the tomb who said Jesus is alive. And then some of the disciples went also and verified what the women had said, and they also didn't see Jesus. And so there's perplexity that's on top of their grief and their despair, And as we see these guys kind of pouring out all of these things so honestly and vulnerably to uh, this stranger, at this point they don't know who he is, we we could ask ourselves the question of what is Jesus doing to draw that out? Is there anything that Jesus is doing to draw out that level of sharing? Well, I'm pretty sure what he is not doing. He is not checking his watch kind of tapping his foot, looking around distractedly, th- trying to figure out when is a, how is a way to politely break in to this conversation so he can get on his way. He's almost undoubtedly not doing that. Instead, I believe he's, he's looking intently at them. There's compassion in his eyes. He's, he's engaged with uh, what is going on, there's smiles and nods and, and facial movements that allow them to see that, that he is listening, he's hearing them fully. Now, the text doesn't say any of that, so we can't be sure. But we do know very clearly from our own experience that we don't share like this when someone is kind of distracted and, and disinterested. And notice that in terms of just the the length of this account, this story, at this point we're over halfway through, and what has Jesus done? What are the verbs for Jesus' actions here? He has drawn near, and he has asked two questions. That's it. That's it. Half the story, and that is all Jesus has done. But that is how he engages with these men: that he is present, he asks strategic questions, and then he listens but not passively, he listens actively, he listens well. He's not stepping in with immediate answers or solutions or commentary, but he's perceptively drawing out their hearts through his questions and through his listening. So Jesus ministered to these men by engaging fully with them and by listening perceptively to them. And then thirdly, we see that Jesus spoke truth graciously to them. Jesus spoke truth graciously. Look at verse 25. And he said to them, O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Now we hear those words and they might not sound very gracious to us. They may sound a little abrupt or confrontational, maybe even harsh to our our ears, our context. But again, in the the context of Jesus' day and culture there, this conversation was much more the norm. And so again, we don't see these men recoiling uh, from Jesus' words, but simply receiving what he says. Jesus' directness with them does not push them away. But in addition to whatever cultural dynamic is going on there, again, I believe this could be the fruit of Jesus' compassionate listening and engagement with them. In other words, by his listening, he's laid a foundation of of trust, of respect for them then to receive what he has to say, even if it feels a little uncomfortable for them to hear. But notice what Jesus focuses on in his response to them. He has drawn out their hearts, and now he addresses their hearts. He says they are slow of heart to believe. Their hearts are slow to believe all that the prophets, the scriptures, have spoken. Jesus zeroes in on their hearts and on this one issue in their hearts, a slowness to believe. Now, on the one hand, we, we might not be that surprised that Jesus focuses on their belief. I mean, that's what Jesus always does, right? But put yourself in that story and think of how you might have uh, responded to these two guys' despair. Would you have have simply tried to, to fix their sadness? Would you have just engaged in details about the events that happened? Would you even have noticed that belief is at the core of what they are experiencing and wrestling with? Well, Jesus does notice And that is the issue that he speaks to directly and graciously. So Jesus addresses their slowness to believe. And he does so by taking them to the scripture and interpreting, reinterpreting for them something that they probably already knew, or at least thought they knew, about the Christ that they were hoping for, the Messiah. Their slowness to believe didn't mean that they were refusing to believe any scripture about the Christ, rather he says it's an unbelief of the full picture they were slow to believe all that the prophets have spoken they were only seeing one part of the picture and so he took them to the scriptures to show the whole gamut the whole picture and remember that these scriptures that Jesus is taking them to this is the old testament this is the books of moses genesis through deuteronomy and and the prophets and it's in this Old, these Old Testament books that Jesus is showing them the Christ. And showing them that he is not only the conquering king, but that he is the suffering servant. And so Jesus doesn't just find a verse in one of the prophets and, uh, that speaks to their hopelessness and, and deliver that to them. But he, he walks them through almost an overview of the whole storyline of scripture. Remember, they're walking on this long walk, so this is probably a long conversation here. And, and he shows them a different picture of the Christ than what they had in their mind. He interprets for them, verse 27 says, which, which means that he's, he's connecting the dots. He's helping them understand what the connection between what the scriptures are saying and what they themselves are experiencing. So what is the result of Jesus engaging fully, listening perceptively, and then speaking truth graciously to these two disciples? Well, the last thing I want us to see here is that Jesus restored hope gradually. Jesus restored hope gradually. Restored hope there is the the fill-in. They've walked seven miles here from Jerusalem to Emmaus. And so when they arrive at their home there in Emmaus, then their Middle Eastern hospitality comes out. They, they urge Jesus to stay with them because the day is far spent and, and they're tired. And so Jesus complies with their offer. He sits down to eat with them. As he breaks the bread, blesses it, and gives it to them, God opens their eyes to finally recognize who this is, that this is Jesus. But as soon as they do, Jesus vanishes from their sight. Well, I can imagine that their excitement just soars as the realization sinks in that they've just been walking and talking for the past, who knows, hour or more with the resurrected Jesus, whom they love and they were longing for. And so they say to each other, no wonder our hearts were burning within us as he spoke with us and open the scriptures to us because he was showing us himself in the scriptures, but he himself was right there too. And they're so excited at this point that though the day is far spent and they've already walked the seven miles from Jerusalem, they get up from the table right there and return all seven miles back to Jerusalem, never mind that they're tired, never mind that it's not safe to walk that road at night, they've just seen Jesus, he's alive Nothing else matters. But we have to ask ourselves the question, why is it that God kept them from recognizing Jesus in all that time? Why did he only reveal Jesus uh, to them when they had reached their home and sat down to eat? Would it not have accomplished the same thing uh, if they had immediately recognized Jesus when he first drew near on the road? well, I think God had something more for these two men than merely dissipating their sadness. Undoubtedly, they gained a much clearer, fuller picture of God's plan for the Christ, and therefore his plan for them through that long discussion and through Jesus' explanation of the scriptures for them. In fact, the very process of of wrestling through Uh, those things and and having to formulate and articulate questions and hearing responses, that very process itself cemented these truths far deeper in their hearts than if it had simply been uh, handed to them. And so my guess is that hope was already surfacing in their hearts while they were still walking on the road, long before Jesus was revealed to them. That hope was stirring when they said that their hearts were burning within them. There's some, something happening internally within them. There is something that is surfacing as they come to realize, wow, this is actually part of God's plan for the Christ. This is not a mistake. This is not the end. And so hope and was already being birthed within them as they walked down the road. Remember, Jesus is addressing faith their belief in their hearts. He had put his finger on their slowness to believe. And so as he helped them to believe, through seeing the bigger picture in the scriptures, then hope was born as a fruit of that belief. Jesus didn't directly address their hope. He addressed their belief. And a resurgence of hope came in response to that belief as it grew. And that's the same for us as well. That believing the truth is what allows us to take hold of hope. Hope is the byproduct of what we believe to be true. And so the restoration of hope in their hearts was a gradual process of coming to believe something more about Jesus through the scriptures. It wasn't simply an instant change when they recognized that this was him. So biblical counseling is discipleship in the hard places of life. Jesus ministered to these two friends in their hard place, in their grief and despair, by engaging fully with them, by listening perceptively to their hearts, by speaking truth graciously, and then restoring hope gradually. And I believe this is a beautiful picture of what we do in a biblical counseling sort of interaction. Well, today is uh, the third Sunday of November. We've been trying to make third Sundays our Discipleship Sunday, uh, where we can hear testimony of how God is growing members of our uh, church in discipleship. And so this morning, uh, we actually have the opportunity to hear briefly from uh, my wife, Vera. And uh, she's going to share something about her experience with uh, biblical counseling. And so, uh, Vera...
1: In all our 26 years of marriage, life has never been as difficult as the first few years after we adopted our daughter, Anna, in 2012. Now adopting a child was not in my plans, certainly not a seven-year-old with Down syndrome. It started when Pastor Corey invited the congregation to consider adopting one of six orphans before Mother's Love Orphanage, a partner ministry of Evergreen SGV, was forced to close its doors. Despite my better judgment, so this is entirely a God thing, uh, we volunteered, trusting God in the church to walk us through this. I figured that when you're doing the right thing, it'll all work out smoothly. Well, I was wrong. So while the church rejoiced at Anna's blessings, we experienced great loss at home as we added her burdens to our lives. I couldn't match others' enthusiasm because I was dealing with the sinking realization that we may have a child who had not progressed past the level of a two- or three-year-old. But to express grief felt like was putting a damper on everyone's joy. So I felt ashamed of the frustration, the anger, and the bitterness that I experienced. I mean, a pastor's wife shouldn't feel these things, right? So these unspoken emotions began to poison my heart, my family, and my ministry. Well, it was at this point that I, Dan asked me if I wanted to see a biblical counselor. And to be honest, I had a negative response. I wonder what the Bible had to say about living with the painful realities of an adoption gone sour. To my knowledge, there was nothing in its pages, and I really didn't have high hopes. By God's grace, he led us to Jessica, who was, a, at that time, a young 20-something single woman. She had neither experience in marriage or adoption, but she, we shared one thing. We were both human. Though my situation was not hers, she knew what it was like to feel frustration, anger, and bitterness. And those issues are addressed in the Bible. So her counsel, through questions and answers, was not so much on how to get out of my painful circumstances, but how to see God in the midst of them, how to interpret my suffering in light of his presence, and how to recognize the options I did have with my everyday life. Most importantly, God spotlighted my tendency to blame everyone but myself for my problems and to take ownership of the sin in my own heart. This is perhaps where biblical counseling differs from other therapies or Christian counseling. As long as I could blame others for my problems, and I did, I diluted the power of the gospel. Christ came for the sick, and viewing myself in light of scripture showed me how very sick I was. I was self-righteous, I was proud, and I was rebellious. Pastors' wives need Jesus, too. Life still is difficult, and it will be for a long time. I'm not out of the woods yet. But, as we walk with the res- but we walk with the resurrected Christ. He explains the way to life. And ironically, it is through my painful struggles that God has uniquely equipped me to journey with others through their struggles in life. Even though I have not experienced them, just as Jessica did for me. And as we seek to build up a community of other wounded healers, God is making disciples in the dark places as the gospel is fleshed out in the lowest points of life. With our risen Christ explaining life to us, we too can spread the good news of Jesus as we walk through the roads of life together. Thank you.
0: Thank you, Vera. Last week, uh, Pastor Rocky spoke about uh, our discipleship tool belt. I don't know if you remember that. And he spoke about one tool that's underutilized on our discipleship tool belt, but it's very important, and that is the tool of our scars. And as we, as brothers and sisters in Christ, as we seek to counsel one another from this biblical lens, then it's actually our own struggle with sin, our own scars and weakness that foundationally qualifies us to serve one another in this way. 2 Corinthians 1 says that we comfort others with the comfort we ourselves have received from God. And so while we definitely value training and equipping ourselves to counsel well and to understand scripture better, it's actually the grace and the comfort of God that he has brought in our places of suffering and sin uh, that allow us then to walk alongside others. And so thank you, Vera. Thank you, others who have uh, shared your own scars with one another um, to help us walk this road together. So to wrap up here, how do we respond well to the pain and suffering of those around us whether it's our own or those that we walk with how do we come alongside that friend in despair with suicidal thoughts how do we minister to the struggling couple whose marriage is undermined by blame how do we address our own areas of sin and struggle and invite someone to help us with that God has uniquely formed his body the church us together to be the place where we receive discipleship in these hard places of life. And we receive that from one another. The things that Jesus modeled with his two friends in the Gospel of Luke are things that we also can do by his Spirit with and for one another. As Jesus did with these two disciples. We can engage fully with one another in the suffering and sin that others are facing. But, like Jesus, this will require that we slow down our pace to match others and enter in, even if it's a standstill, even if it's messy. As Jesus did with these two disciples, we can listen perceptively to one another, seeking to draw out others' hearts in the midst of their suffering. But like Jesus, this will also require a humility that we don't assume that we understand, but that we enter in, we ask those questions, we listen perceptively to hear where their heart is at. As Jesus did with these two disciples, we can speak truth graciously to one another, looking to the whole counsel of Scripture rather than merely our own advice. But like Jesus, this will require that we are students of the word, that we are letting the word of Christ dwell richly within our hearts so that what we speak comes from that lens of scripture. For some of us, listening comes more naturally, and so we really need to grow in this capacity to speak the truth in love. But for others of us, speaking comes very quickly, and we need to grow in the capacity to listen and to wait. And finally, as Jesus did with these two disciples, we can help to restore hope gradually in the hearts of those to whom we minister. But like Jesus, this will require that we identify their hearts, where their hearts are not trusting God, and then call them to believe so that hope then can follow. As the people of God, we're called to minister to one another to walk with one another in these hard places of life. And so biblical counseling is a very key aspect of this life of discipleship that God calls us to. And I hope and pray that this will come to characterize more and more our experience of life with one another in this church family. Will you pray with me? Father, thank you. Thank you for your word, thank you for uh, your life within us. Thank you that you have given us one another. And Lord, I pray that you would grow a culture within this church where we are walking with one another, not just in the things that are happy and, and easy and good, but in these dark and hard places, places where we feel out of our depth, where we do not know. And yet in those places, Lord, Would you turn us to you? Would you help us to see the common humanness that we have and the ways in which you have equipped us through our own struggles to then care for others? So, Lord, would you bless and grow us as people who love you well and love those around us well as we walk together? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.